This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. How about the Mariners, you guys? Oh my goodness. What the heck? Yeah. Hot start. And those first eight games, you know, they could have gone 8 0 if uh, the relief pitcher hadn't been injured. Right? They, they were <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, they phenomenal. Were, one injury away from being seven and zero to yeah. start, or eight and zero from having swept three series to start exactly. the season. That's not what anyone expected. Not bad for a team taking a step back in 2019. That's pretty impressive. Plus, it was also fans' first opportunity to view T-Mobile Park to see all the changes to Heritage as well. All the changes that have been made. You guys out at T-Mobile Park. Yeah, we've got craft cocktail carts around the stadium, and uh, they made. Uh, magenta magenta mojo cocktail yeah. drink so it was a pre pre-batched uh pink lemonade i know uh, steve dominguez from uh, center plate was talking about that in the show last week and then the new bsb uh at the caught looking lounge out in center field and i they made my way over there on sunday first yeah it's great great space we love it and um you know just the fan reactions are awesome and and uh, at the same time we signed a deal with the texas rangers so we've been getting Text of photos and posts of home runs are being hit over the left center field wall because uh, a huge BSB sign out in left center oh, field wall. Cool. <laughs> so people people are emailing, text, texting, tweeting. You know what the heck is this sign out in Texas? Well, we signed a deal with Texas Rangers and BSB is moving into the Southwest. You know, yeah, expanding. That, that's pretty darn exciting. Well, speaking of sports and partnerships that you guys have, there's also the Masters are coming up, and you guys have a pretty cool partnership with a local guy playing in the PGA Tour. We do. Kyle Stanley. He's a professional golfer. He's on the tour from Gig Harbor, uh, grew up there. He and his wife both grew up there. And in fact, his house, he and his wife lived literally a couple of blocks from our downtown waterfront distillery and tasting room. And we were shocked out of the blue, got an email from his agency out of New York saying, hey, we represent Kyle Stanley. And he emailed us specifically and said he wants a partnership with his hometown distillery at Heritage. He'd like to figure out how to have you guys become sponsors and partners and supporters on the tour. And of course, we were blown away uh, and honored. So we were able to work out an accommodation, and uh, he and his wife came and toured last week and uh, got some samples, of course, and got pictures with the staff. And um, he's going to be a great ambassador for us on the road and you know, hopefully introduce BSB to many of the golfers on the tour and their spouses and supporters. And uh, you may see BSB pop up on a bag here or there or a hat or something like that on tour. And, you know, I told him, look, uh, BSB is birdie juice. So treat it accordingly, <laughs> but sparingly while you're while you're on the tour. But, you know, we're just we're amazed at the uh, level of support that we continue to get from the community and, you know, try to do right by it. Yeah. Anytime you can have a local tie, that is really neat. And the fact that he approached you and really wanted to create a partnership is is cool. I mean, ranked right now 47th in the world wow. and two PGA tour victories yeah. to his name. So just 31 years old, it's exciting things I'm sure uh, ahead for him as well. So we'll keep our eye on him at the masters. In the meantime, what's in the headlines this week? Well, we're talking about canned wines and the explosion of canned wines as more and more 
uh, consumers move to that. As more consumers move to that category, then more suppliers respond to what the consumer wants. So we're seeing canned wine uh, hot brands are making tremendous gains. According to Nielsen, canned wines last year jumped almost 70% to $70 million uh, just in the canned wine market alone. That is up uh, almost 740,000 cases. That's a big deal uh, for a segment of the industry that is so traditional in terms of bottle, bottle shape and size relative to the kind of wine because, uh, you know, Chardonnay is a different shape than uh, Merlot and so on. Uh, no corks, no caps. This is just individual serving by the can. Oregon winemaker Union Wine Company carved out a niche in the canned wine area with its Underwood label. They launched it in 2014. They're seeing growth 40% each year in the last three years, just in that brand alone. 400,000 cases in 2018. Other brands that are popping up are getting into uh, 300 and 400,000 cases. There's a line of uh, Brute Bubbles coming out, which is uh, kind of a canned champagne. Uh, you're seeing grapefruit spritzes, Pinot Noir, Sangrias, and others. So this will continue to uh, evolve and grow tremendously because people are looking for individual servings. They don't want to open a whole bottle. Uh, they want to try stuff in smaller uh, formats. And when they go out to the beach or go camping, a can is way easier than hauling around a bunch of glass because it's heavy. And then what do you do with it? It's not that easy to recycle. Yeah, you just mentioned, when you mentioned the grapefruit spritz, that's from Seattle based. Uh, Precept Wines, their house wine brand, and I actually just grabbed yep. a, a can of that grapefruit spritz at the store the other night. It was same, the same thing you were saying. I didn't really want a bottle, but I saw that, and it sounded nice and light and refreshing, and just put that in my basket and brought it home. And it's yeah, I, I can see why these are things that people are gravitating towards. Well, we're continuing on with the local well, ties theme today because yeah, the Oregon winemaker Union Wine, and then the Seattle based Precept Wines, clearly two of the big companies making their surge and probably very popular in the Pacific Northwest region. They are. And the Precept uh, Wine Company is owned by Andrew and Courtney Brown, and um, they live in the Seattle area and great people. Uh, lots of brands that you would see in the market that you, you recognize, like the house wine brand. Uh, probably the biggest brand they're seeing movement in right now at, at retail like Costco and others is the Brown family brand. And it's a brown label and brown spelled B-R- O-W-N-E, tremendous wines, uh, huge growth, and just a great local company focused on doing the right thing in the industry. So they're, then they're good people. What else is going on in the headlines this week? Well, the drinks business is reporting that our friends at Sam Adams Brewing Company, Boston Beer uh, of, of Boston Beer fame, they are releasing a beer dedicated to Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, the <laughs> beer is going to be called When There Are Nine. Uh, it's a Belgian brute IPA. It's named after her famous response to the question, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And, of course, the answer then is when there are nine. According to the team at the brewery, they wanted to name it Brute Bader Ginsburg, but the legal team dissented. The new brew forms part of a fundraising initiative with the Pink Boot Society, who we were just talking, we're going to talk to you later in the show, that supports women in the U.S. beer industry. Uh, it's brewed by the Pink Boot Society in collaboration with hop supplier Yakima Chief, and it was brewed on International Women's Day uh, back on March 8th, so it's getting ready for its release. Uh, they're going to be having ticketed events around, and uh, for those who are fans of uh uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they can add this uh, beer to their collection. Yeah, that's pretty darn cool. But yeah, we'll be talking to Anita Riley from the Pink Boot Society later in the show. It's a it's a really great program. They help women in every aspect of the beer industry, brewing, 
designing labels, just every aspect of creating it. Um, and they offer a lot of scholarships for people to get into that field. That's coming up later on Cast Club Radio. But first, we've got a couple drinking myths, legends, and rituals to talk about here. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. In just a few minutes, we'll speak with Anita Riley from Pink Boots Society, hear about the incredible cause and also the book she's written, which donates money to that cause. But first, drinking myths, legends, and ancient rituals. There are a few of them floating out around there. I'm sure we've all heard one or two in the past. Some are true, others maybe not so much, but they still tell you and give you a lot of insight as to the rich history of of booze, uh, surrounding the customs and rituals with it. So, Justin, this is from the drinks business. Can you get us started on some of some of these rituals? Yeah, the first one I've actually experienced, and this uh, comes to us from China, either in social or professional capacities, you're going to run into a custom called uh, Genbei, which is, uh, at some point, it means dry your cup. And what happens is, especially if you're at a dinner event, the host will uh, come around to you with uh, their glass and then uh, your glass is sitting there, and they will expect that you uh, fill your glass up and then with them take the shot to fill the glass. It could be filled with baiju, which is a very high-proof Chinese liquor, or it could be be filled with beer or or wine or whatever. To uh, refuse to do this is a sign of disrespect, and in a business setting can mean the difference between securing or losing a deal. Uh, the problem oh. comes, it's not just limited to odd toasts, but it is repeated over and over and over again. So I've, I've uh, witnessed this and uh, been the victim of it at times where the host will get up and just literally go around to multiple people at the table doing this. So the host ends up getting uh, a little snockered. Uh, and then others begin to join in and they will get up and go around. So you may have multiple people coming at you, essentially uh, asking you to take shots with them. <laughs> and uh, if you're drinking Baiju, which can be 104 proof or higher, uh, it doesn't take much for a few people to find themselves on the on the wrong end of a bad evening. Sounds like kind of the opposite of what you would do in a business meeting here in the US for the most part. <laughs> you might get fired for doing that at a business <laughs> meeting. Yeah. Yeah, that's because the uh, business meeting then is usually the next day to secure the deal. So this is really uh, how you kind of collaborate. Now, luckily for me, I happen to be about six foot three and 260 pounds, and I'm able to uh, handle a little more than uh, the average folks over there, but uh, still have to maintain some level of temperance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes being respectful can get you can get you drunk, I guess, apparently in certain cultures. What what else is on this list? Uh, Next on the list was uh, in the 18th century. It was common for pirates to add gunpowder to rum. We've talked about that in the show in the past. Uh, Blackbeard, the pirate, otherwise uh, is given birth name Edward Teach. Uh, In particular, he was said to drink gunpowder laced rum before boarding enemy ships. The practice was said to be a form of Dutch courage and to enforce his reputation as a crazed and unpredictable foe. Uh, That's the myth. However, the custom really came from adding gunpowder to alcohol in the 1600s when sailors were given rations of rum instead of money. The suspicious officers and uh, enlisted men were concerned that their rum was being watered down, so they would add gunpowder to it and they would try to light it. And if it lit, then it means it was the appropriate proof. If it did not light, then it was underproof, and it meant that they were uh, getting rum with too much water, uh, and therefore that's where we came up with the word proof to determine how much alcohol is actually in the alcohol. 
I never knew that. Exactly. A little history lesson for it. Love it. Yeah. Uh, Number three on the list here. Those wishing to settle in the Northern Territory of Newfoundland are required to take part in an initiation ceremony, which they call the Screeched Inn. It's a bizarre tradition that allows them to become mainlanders in the eyes of the natives. The ceremony, most commonly held in pubs, requires non-locals wishing to make their, say, uh, a permanent drink a shot of the region's local spirit, a rum called Newfoundland Screech. And they have to recite a verse and then kiss a fish, usually a cod, on the lips. Hmm. While holding a shot of Screech, participants are asked, why are you a Screecher? And are taught the proper response. Deed I is, me o'clock, and long may ye a big jib draw. This translates into "Yes, I am, my old friend," and "May your sails always catch wind." Just a little, just a little fish, fish kiss. I did a report on Newfoundland in middle school, and I've I've always uh, like thought of that every time I hear it brought up <laughs> since. That's about all I know about it. But now uh, I learned something new about the uh, the traditions. Well, this uh, is one more reason I probably will not move to Newfoundland. I might go visit, but not move. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> Probably not. Not, really not for that purpose only. Yeah. Uh, next on the list, another Viking tradition is that of skull. Uh, it's a toast to friendship, good fortune, and health, which requires steady and sustained eye contact with your drinking partner after saying skull and drinking from your glass. It is customary to, again, meet your drinking partner's eyes as you lower your vessel back to the table. The Vikings were famously dubious of their drinking company. <laughs> And the tradition ensured that they could fix their team, uh, they could fix them with their gaze to prepare in the event of an impromptu duel. Skull, translated as shell or bowel, can mean skull, reflecting the belief that Vikings would drink spirits and wine out of the skull of fallen enemies. And, uh, uh, again, a way to uh, initiate uh, folks into the local traditions. So I've never drunk in, uh, or consumed out of a skull. Um, and... <laughs> You know, I'm not really worried about anybody attacking me with a knife while I am drinking. That's just me. <laughs> they still they all skull at Vikings games as kind of an adaptation of this when they have their yes. Viking mascot out there. It was also yep. part of the World Cup, a certain World Cup cheer chant, which I think they took. I think the Vikings also took that from Team Sweden, I mm-hmm. believe. So, yeah, it's now made its way into the sports world as well. What else is on the list? Apparently, in 1891, a Russian man met his end at the hands of a drunken bear. The story goes that a man living in the Russian town of Vilna, now known as Vilnius, was offered a bear to keep as a pet by an unnamed individual who told him it was tame, but had a taste for vodka. (laughs) The man bizarrely accepted the gift, taking the bear home. One day, the bear barged its way into the tavern and supposedly started glugging down a keg of vodka. The tavern owner tried to object. But the boozed-up bear mauled the innkeeper to death before doing the same to his two sons and a daughter. Villagers are said to have found the drunken animal asleep in a pool of blood and alcohol, at which point it was shot. Oh, that's awful. I'm going to yeah. say this one's a myth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call myth on this <laughs> one as well, because also just the casual, the casual nature of, oh, this guy was just offered a bear as a pet. Like, yeah, and he just casually, yeah. oh, okay, um, he likes to drink a lot, but um, he's a tame bear. Hasn't he seen The Revenant? Or, yeah, or right. Or wasn't that the movie with yes. Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah, <laughs> oh, no problem. I'll take yeah. him home. So, yeah, I'm calling myth on this one as well, Maura. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Next on the list, of all the spirits in the world, absinthe is perhaps the most beguiling. The anise 
flavored spirit is derived from botanicals and include flowers. Uh, it includes wormwood uh, and together with green anise and sweet fennel has other medicinal and culinary herbs based on traditional recipes. Usually green in color and it's usually bottled at a very high proof, 120 proof. Uh, it's popular in bohemian crowds. The spirit became known for its apparent psychoactive and hallucinogenic properties due to the chemical thujone, which is uh, derived from the distillation of the wormwood compound. Uh, wormwood is one of those base ingredients that goes in. It is found in, uh, although it's not toxic, it is not proven to have psychedelic effects. It was outlawed for many years, though. It had been banned in the U.S. by 1915 and in much of Europe, including France, Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, and Austria-Hungary. Now believe that its psychoactive properties were greatly exaggerated. Hysteria surrounded absinthe at the time saw the spirit blamed for a number of heinous crimes, including one legend that uh, one of our more famous artists cut his ear off uh, after consuming absinthe uh, with extra doses of thujone from wormwood. So um, the most notorious was that of John Lafray, a French laborer living in Switzerland. In 1905, he convicted of murdering his pregnant wife and two children in a drunken rage. Police later revealed that he had drunk several glasses of wine, six glasses of cognac, one coffee laced with brandy, two creamed mints, and two glasses of absinthe after eating a sandwich. But due to the panic surrounding absinthe in Europe at the time, his murder was blamed solely on absinthe, not on all the other liquor he consumed, uh, and thus it led to it being outlawed. Similar myths have been had with other food uh, products, including back in the day, uh, tomatoes were thought to make you go crazy, and thus eating tomatoes uh, was really? not a good thing. I didn't know yeah. that either. Yeah. I'm learning all kinds of things. Those yeah. nightshades, man. The Italians wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, agree with that, but uh, it was a myth that came out of London. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, we speak with Anita Riley. She joins us. She has written an incredible book called Brewing Ambition, also sits on the board of the Pink Boots Society and their scholarship fund. It has a pretty incredible story, how they're supporting women in this industry. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we are joined by Anita Riley, author of Brewing Ambition and also one of the board members for Pink Boots Society, which we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. Anita, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? We are doing excellent. We always relish the opportunity to A, talk to someone who's involved with an amazing cause, but also B, uh, learn more about beer and the beer industry. And you yourself, you have a pretty extensive background. Yeah, I packed a lot into just a short amount of time. <laughs> so uh, my beer journey started about five years ago um, when I started going to school at uh, AB Tech, which is Asheville Buncombe Technical Community College. Um, and they have the Craft Beverage Institute of the Southeast. So I got my formal training there. And uh, just a little bit about me. I was a single mom while I was going back to school. My son was entering high school the same time I started college. And so I was heavily dependent on scholarships to be able to get through my education. And uh, found out about Pink Boot Society along the way. Uh, realized that they didn't have formal education scholarships. So I was only able to join as a member, but I wasn't able to get scholarships to help me with my formal education. But there's a lot of scholarship opportunities out there and really just decided to take this on as uh, my way to give back once I was able to get out of school and start my career. Wow, that's pretty darn incredible. When you went back to school, did you know initially that this is really what you wanted to pursue, the brewing element of it? 
You know, it was funny. I was in Asheville, North Carolina, which has been named Beer City, USA a couple of times now. And I was a photographer. And it was just really an interesting time with the recession, um, kind of at the tail end of the recession. The photography industry just really changed in a way that I knew that it was time for me to learn something new. And this was about the same time that AB Tech announced that they were going to start a two-year brewing program, which for me, it was perfect. It was creative. It was technical. There's a lot of fun people in the photography industry as well as in the beer industry. And it just seemed like a natural fit for me when I was looking for a new career. And I felt like it was a thing that, you know, like Sierra Nevada and New Belgium were coming into town. And I was like, hey, maybe I'm going to be employed after all. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So uh, as soon as you did get out of school, what was your experience then? Well, I was started working at a seven-barrel brewery, um, actually moved out of town uh, to Hillsboro, North Carolina, which is right outside the Raleigh-Durham area, um, and that was a really great place to learn. I got to put my hands on just about everything. Um, I brewed, I cellared, I did the lab work, um, and really just fell in love with the cellar, uh, with the lab, with fermentation, kind of found where my sweet spot was. Um, and then a couple of years later, transitioned over to my current brewery, which is Lone Rider. It's a much bigger brewery, um, both in scale and in volume. And so uh, I'm just really still excited to learn more, something new about yeast every day. <laughs> That's amazing. And you've managed to also help other people learn. You wrote a book. I did, yeah. So uh, uh, Caroline Parnon-Smith approached us as an organization a couple of years ago, I was in my first year of my career, um, 2016, and she wanted to know how she, as a chapter leader on the local level, could really be impactful for women across the industry and how to make this a, a success. And so my idea was to write a book. Being a mom, I just looked at what the local PTA was doing um, with my son's school. And, you know, they put together a family recipe book. And I was like, you know, maybe we could do something like that with beer, um, have women from across the industry donate beer recipes, like on a homebrew scale. And then I can tell a little bit about who these women are. I think it shed a lot of light on women in this industry as a whole, the different roles that they play, and then also just to let women that are maybe interested in homebrewing, give them some recipes to work with and inspire them. If this is an industry that they're looking at and think maybe there's not a place for me, there absolutely is. Wow, that's pretty incredible. And yeah, I would imagine very inspiring. So part of the proceeds from that book benefit the Pink Boots Scholarship Fund. Can you tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that? So we have a scholarship fund with Pink Boot Society, which exists to assist, inspire, and encourage women beer professionals to further their career through education. And we do that with scholarships already. Um, we're doing, we have a lot of donated seats from wonderful uh, industry educators, everything from like UC Davis, uh, which is really well known, Siebel, which is really well known for their fermentation education, but also White Labs has a yeast program that's, you know, a couple days, and you can learn a ton of information in that time. Uh, Yakima Chief Hop hosts the Hop and Brew School, and so we're able to send women to these continuing education sorts of programs as well. And so 
Typically, we're getting a lot of donated seats to us, which is fantastic. And then the funds that we raise help get the women to these courses. In other instances, uh, the big goals right now, we're looking at those degree programs and how do we help women that are seriously pursuing their education to be able to afford to go back to school. How did even looking at Pink Boot Society, how did that organization get started? It's actually a really cool story. So Terry Farndorf, who is in Portland, Oregon, uh, had been a brewer since uh, the 1980s. And 19 years into her career, you just need a break, right? Yeah. <laughs> so she yeah. took a sabbatical. She thought that she was the only woman in the beer industry. It's all she had ever seen were men. Um, And she visited over 100 different breweries. And she met 60 women across the country that were all in the same role. They were all brewing. All of them thought that they were on this island by themselves. And she just started the Pink Boot Society from there. Uh, She wore pink PPE, the pink brew boots on this trip and so uh, that was really where the name came from and she just started networking these women putting them together providing them with resources that she had found helpful and created this exchange of information so that we could help support each other in our careers wow so from 60 originally how has has pink boot society grown Oh, my gosh. Uh, Today we are global. We've got chapters in Australia, just started one in the U.K. Uh, There's a lot of interest in China. Uh, They don't yet have their chapter up and going, but uh, they're participating in some of our brew events. Uh, Belgium, all over the European Union. South America is getting huge. It's just amazing. We have over 2,500 members worldwide, most of them still in the U.S., um, but we're really excited about the future. So all 50 states? Are you are you in all 50 states as of now? I think there's two states that we aren't okay. in. But soon, probably soon, I would imagine, with, with, the, yeah. with the incredible uh, growth that you guys have seen over these years. Going back specifically to the scholarship program, just is there a success story that has really stood out to you or just made you happy? Yes, actually, you know, coming from my own personal perspective, um, I just heard a story from Michelle in the D.C. area, similar to my story. So, you know, it pulls at those heartstrings, um, but she actually started working in the industry without education, um, started as a bartender and uh, felt like she needed a boost, you know, if she was really going to be able to support her and her family. She's got a couple kids. And uh, so she was able to take our uh, Cicerone scholarship and from that uh, really catapulted her forward to where now she's a production manager running the production side in a brewery and, you know, is supporting her family and just really rocking this industry in in great ways, doing amazing things on the local level. She's very active in her chapter and uh, really just kind of brings me to tears every time I think about it. Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty darn incredible. I'm sure people listening right now are wanting perhaps to get involved after hearing about this. How can they do so? How can they find your book and or maybe even also the beers that women in Pink Boot Society are creating? 
Sure. So the book is available on lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U. And if you just search Brewing Ambition, it'll come up right away. Um, and you can order it there online. The proceeds goes directly to Pink Boot Society. And if they want to get uh, a hold of the beers, watch their local listings. Find out where the Pink Boot Society chapter is in your area. Uh, we've got a catalog of all of our chapters, so you can go to pinkbootsociety.org. That's Pink Boots with two S, so Pink Boots Society. Um, and look at our chapters. You can find your local chapter. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Follow us nationally. Um, and I know that there's a lot of national brands making Pink Boots beers as well, so that's Super exciting. Sam Adams, Stone, Yingling, some of these bigger breweries are really getting on board, and we couldn't be more happy to have their support. Anita, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. What a cool story, your story, and also the Pink Boot Society story. I'm sure our listeners will be excited to to get involved, and we really appreciate you taking time out of your day because it sounds like it's pretty busy. (laughs) I have a lot of fun with it, though. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Coming up next, it's National Gin and Tonic Day on Tuesday. We're going to give you a little bit of history behind this iconic drink and, of course, leave you with a special gin and tonic recipe. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Just a few minutes in celebration of Gin and Tonic Day coming up. We've got a great new cocktail, a twist on the traditional gin and tonic for you. But first, Maura, you've got kind of a cool story about the history, the background of the gin and tonic, the G&T, as it's known. Yeah, the cocktail recipe we're going to give you is actually going to feature a fever tree tonic. And on their site, they have a little bit of a of story up that says that a quinine comes from a tree known as the fever tree. And its tonic water's primary ingredient has been an important role in the history of malaria treatment. Wow. The healing properties of the fever tree were first discovered in the 1600s when the bark was given to the Countess of Chinchon, who had contracted malaria while living in Peru. But it wasn't until the 1820s when the benefits became world-renowned. Officers of the British Army in India, in an attempt to ward off malaria, mixed quinine with sugar and water, creating the first tonic water. Wow. And it was made more palatable when they added the ingredient of gin to the mixture. So... So really, about. it was a, it was a more medicinal purpose and then just sort of a happy accident that yeah. created gin and tonics. I guess like adding a spoonful of sugar to your to, medicine, they add yeah. a little bit of gin to their quinine. <laughs> That's right. I don't, I don't think a doctor today would, if you had malaria, would prescribe you to go home and take two gin and tonics. Uh, yeah, not sure you're going to get a doctor to recommend that one. Plus, for my research I did online, I learned that quinine is not quite as prominent in tonic today. So you'd need to drink 67 liters of gin and tonic a day in order to have a dose of quinine strong enough to prevent malaria. So don't think that's going to work for you. We've evolved a little bit medicinally, <laughs> but that is pretty impressive that that is how it came about. Are you guys a big fan of the gin and tonic? Since on uh, April 9th is National Gin and Tonic Day, will you be celebrating with a G&T? My wife, Jennifer, loves gin and tonics. And uh, so, yeah, she'll be having that for sure. Yeah, I my mom is a huge gin and tonic fan. When I went to Great Britain to go to the Hawks game last year and also spent some time in Edinburgh, I was really amazed and impressed with how big gin is. I wouldn't have thought by any mm. means. But I was able to bring her back several different types of gin, local gin, 
that they made there. And so she's been experimenting and making some gin and tonics with them. One of them, which she absolutely loved, was a rhubarb gin that they make there. Um, Mm. That has won a lot of awards. But yeah, so she's she'll be looking forward to a national gin and tonic day for sure. All right, you have to make mm-hmm. her one on Tuesday with yes, this recipe. That we absolutely, have. Uh, Justin, g- give us the latest recipe that uh, puts a little cool spin on the classic. It does. So uh, we took the traditional gin and tonic, and we uh, call this the gin Mediterranean. Uh, we use two ounces of our Elk Rider Crisp Gin, which is a very clean, ninety-four proof gin. Uh, we top it with Fever Tree. Mediterranean tonic. It's one of the many flavor varieties they've got. Uh, and then the twist here is we garnish it with peppercorn, cucumber wheels, and fresh dill. So in the glass uh, with ice, you're going to add the gin, two ounces. You're going to add the tonic uh, and then put some peppercorn, whole peppercorns in there, uh, sliced cucumber wheels, and the fresh dill. And uh, it's just a great, refreshing uh, twist on a traditional gin and tonic. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't have thought of the dill, but that sounds amazing, especially with the cucumber. Yeah. It probably brings out some of those herbaceous notes that you kind of get with gin. Yeah, and the key thing with gin is uh, it really depends on the kind and brand of gin you get because there are so many different gins in the market and they use so many different botanicals that uh, they vary greatly between gin uh, styles that uh, depending on how you mix it and the kind of other uh, garnishes you put in, uh, it's really going to accentuate one or more elements of that gin. Yeah, and something that you might not think about is the quality of the tonic you're using as well. Green All Gin's master distiller told Good Housekeeping UK, quote, distillers like myself put a lot of time and passion and effort into distilling our gins. So cheap tonics can really ruin the experience of a good G&T. Always try to match your tonic to the gin, and a lot of good gin brands will recommend suitable tonics if you want to take a visit to their site. Well, we've discussed before that there was a study done by Austria's Innsbruck University that asked people about bitter food and drinks like dark chocolate coffee and tonic water and decided that uh, people from the survey tended to have uh, some psychopathic personality traits if they liked things oh. like uh, gin and tonic. But uh, I th- I think we're all okay. Yeah. I, come on. Yeah. I'm just going to call that like part of the smear campaign against gin. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, they ask questions like... Science. Um, <laughs> they had people with responses like, I enjoy tormenting people. I like gin and tonic, but no. No, no. that doesn't... I don't <laughs> fall under that category. So I don't think you can necessarily lump everything together there. Close together. Well, this recipe, as we have in the past, put all the recipes online for you to have access to, to share with people, is going to be available for you at heritagedistilling.com, where you can make some for gin and tonic day because why not you can also download episodes of the cast club radio podcast at heritagedistilling.com you can also find it at mynorthwest.com and you can find us uh, on cairo fm and espn 710 am you can also find us on espn over in eastern washington and uh, soon we're coming to additional cities and uh we also ask you to go to instagram facebook look for us at cast club radio and of course don't forget to rate us on itunes Go Mariners. Yes. Yeah, go Mariners. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling.